just a little bit late, and I would like to begin with a prayer, please. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We thank you, O God, for the gift of this day, and for the promise of all that it holds for us. And we pray that as we make use of our time this day, and of our life that you gave to us this day, we would be able to make use of it in a way that is pleasing to you and helpful to ourselves and helpful to one another. That the things that we hear and learn this day, things that we say with our mouths and express from our souls, might be a reflection of that faith which you have given to us through the gift of your spirit. We pray that you bless the mind and the being of Dr. Trinkline as he addresses us this morning so that he will be able to speak in a way that will bring us your message and your word for our life. We pray in the name of of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You have heard uh, derogatory things said about the churches that take uh, two collections. And uh, at the risk of that, I am uh, standing here holding a basket that I'm going to pass now. And, 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 and assure you that there will also be baskets passed a little bit later in the usual customs. But what is happening right now is kind of interesting. Uh, since uh, the last meeting like this, a uh, special gift was given to the congregation for the purpose of establishing a grace lectureship, which assures us of the fact that we will be able to continue uh, to do this kind of uh, thing uh, that we have begun this year, at least for uh, the immediate future. Now, naturally, uh, the Grace Lectureship at this point amounts to about uh, $450. And uh, I just don't want to see that just uh, disappear into nothingness. So uh, every now and then, I'm going to pass the hat. And uh, you're, you're not obligated to give anything. But if you appreciate this sort of thing, and you'd like to show your appreciation in some way, uh, maybe you'd like to make uh, some small gift. Dr. Trinkline uh, comes, uh, came to us during these four times without any obligation on our part financially. And so we are very, very appreciative of him for this uh, gift of his to us. Um, I want to be sure that we show our appreciation to him at least so that his four trips down here won't cost him any money. So we are going to give him an honorarium uh, for his uh, four lectures out of our race lectureship. But the hat, or uh, the proverbial hat, or the basket, so to speak, is, uh, is to go to that account. Now that I've taken care of all the mundane matters of the morning, and I'm so glad to see these chairs beginning to fill up. I was getting to be a little worried there for a while. Uh, 
Uh, I'll, I'll stop talking and uh, give the floor to Dr. Sprinkle. Thank you, Pastor Eifert, and good morning. How nice it is to see so many people, especially in the last part of a lecture series. Usually when there are a number of talks, the attendance tends to dwindle toward the end, and I'm happy to see that we have almost a reverse trend here, for which we praise the Lord. We're going to have a sort of summary today of what we've been talking about, and I resisted the temptation to do what every teacher does on that sort of occasion, is to have a short quiz, but I have enough papers to correct already. I'd like to begin with a story that Dr. Norman Vincent Peale likes to tell at this time of the year. And you may have heard it, and if not, please don't give the punchline away to your neighbor as I progress with it. But the story goes like this, that once upon a time, as Easter was approaching in New York City, billboards began to appear around the area saying, Jesus will come to New York at Easter. And as the people drove past these billboards on the LIE, they began to wonder what product is being sold here it didn't say anything about any toothpaste or anything else. It just kept saying, and more and more billboards appeared, Jesus will come to New York on Easter Sunday. That's all it said. As the time got closer, people began to get a little nervous. After all, if Jesus is coming, he's only coming once, he said, once more, and who knows? This may be it. Well, Easter came. And every church in New York was absolutely crowded. But as people looked around, they noticed a very interesting thing. Nobody was in his own church. And when they started discussing the matter, it turned out that people confessed to each other that if Jesus is coming, he would surely come to some church. And with the way things are going in their own church, he would surely not come to theirs. Now there is a grain of truth there, of course, that we all feel guilty about our own religious life and perhaps the lack of it. And that's what we'd like to address this morning, how we can put to use what we've been discussing the last three times in the area of reason, how to use our reason, and how to apply our faith, and specifically today, in church life. And the first question that comes to mind is why do people stay away from church? I ask people that question around the world, and I'd like to read what some of the scientists of the world said why they don't go to church. First of all, they made very clear to me that not going to church was not an indication that they were not religious. Well, they all, with two exceptions, said they were very religious. But very few of them went to church. One of them in Berlin, a very prominent scientist, said, please distinguish between religion and the church. He said it is still true today that many people retain membership for some superficial reason 
like baptizing their children, getting married, or getting buried. A man can be a good scientist and be very religious, but to be religious means to be in possession of a spiritual conviction that responds to the needs of men living together, a social concern. Now you say that may be typical of Europe, that in Europe all the people, at least in most of the countries, have an official state church membership, but it doesn't mean that they take it seriously. As a matter of fact, one person said, since the ministers in Germany are paid out of the tax money, we leave them alone. They're getting paid for what they're doing, we're taking care of them, so why should we be concerned and go to church? One student in Finland told me that when he got confirmed into the Lutheran Church, and in Lutheran, in Finland, over 90% of the people are Lutherans, because that's what the state church is, they made a vow among each other, these young people who were confirmed, never to go to church again. That student came to this country and was in our Lutheran high school. And after I placed that student in a home, a Christian home who wanted to have a Lutheran student there, the mother and father came to me a few weeks later and said, please remove this Lutheran student from our home because he's having a bad influence on our children. He was telling them that as Lutherans in Finland, they make vows never to go to church. What is his goal in life? To be a politician, to be a political leader in Finland and perhaps get back here as an ambassador to the United Nations. And indeed he did. It was years ago. He did get back as part of the Finnish delegation. So when we say that the Lutheran Church is the largest Protestant denomination in the world with 80 million members, we have to Take that not just with a grain, but like one person said, be sure and take your salt shaker along, because what does it really mean? What is another reason why people don't go to church? This person was saying in Berlin that being religious means being concerned about your fellow man. And we'll say, well, we'll buy that. That's a good thing. But he is certainly not doing what God wants him to do and what scripture is asking of him. Another person in this country, lest we think that this is relegated to Europe, this was in a large university in the United States. He said that the reason he's not going to church is the following, and I'm quoting, once I went to one of the campus ministry groups, and I might mention that this person was also a Lutheran, had membership in the Lutheran Church. It's amazing how many Lutherans I ran into among the world scientists on a completely random basis. And in this case, the man told me, I'm sorry, but I don't go to the church anymore on Sunday mornings. He said, once I went to the campus ministry group where we were asked by the minister to evaluate the program for their youth. He told us that the week before they reviewed one of those new modern films from a downtown fine arts theater. What he's talking about is some X-rated movie that he felt that people should know about. They also sent a letter to some activist groups supporting a cause they happened to have, and on and on. I asked him whether he happened to touch on the classical Christian concepts 
and he said, they have a tough job selling that. They've had their fill of church, the young people have, and Sunday school and all of that. And I said, and this is the president of an American university, Reverend, I think you're doing a beautiful job of selling Christianity down the river. Here are the two opposite poles. The one man who is not going to church because he feels that all he has to do is being concerned, be concerned about his fellow human being, and the other person who says the church is spending too much time trying to get the people involved in movie theaters and social activist groups and is not taking enough time preaching the gospel. Now, are there any other reasons why people don't go to church? Well, I'd like to submit one more as we talk about reason and faith and then spend a few minutes seeing what we as members of a church can do about this and how we should talk to other people about this concern. And that is that I feel that a lot of people don't show up on Sunday morning for the simple reason that they don't realize that there is great value and obligation to worshiping. People are so accustomed in our country to going someplace because they're getting something. They pay admission to some place, like a theater, or they buy something in a place of business, and they expect to get their money's worth. We're so conditioned to getting what we pay for that we forget that one of the main reasons for going to church is to give. To give, not into collection plate merely, but to give worship to the Lord. That we're there to worship. And it's interesting that none of the people I spoke to mentioned that. So it must be that we're not doing a very good job as Christians emphasizing the fact that you go to church because God expects you to be there to give your worship, not only to get. Well, let's make a list for a few moments of what we feel, and I hope there is some lively discussion on this, of what the church is there for. So if somebody asks us, as they often do, and if, if you're faced with a situation where a man or a woman says, I'm not going to church because then what do you say? Well, what is the church not? You know, very often you hear about people not going to church because there's something about the church they don't like. I remember when I grew up and was trained in the Lutheran church in my community as a youngster, when a person asked me why I was a Lutheran, the only thing I could come up with is that we were not this and we were not Catholic and we were not Methodist, and pretty soon people got the impression that the only thing we were was not. So that if you don't do anything, you should be a pretty good Lutheran. <laughs> well, let's get those out first. What is the church not? Well, for one thing, I hear a lot of people talking about how bad the church is. That's, of course, human to always talk about the bad things, right? Like Alice Longworth. Mrs. Longworth, who used to be Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, I just heard this in a speech the other day. She had a little saying, 
And she was quite a gal. She got married in the White House, got to be 90-some years old, and she had a little plaque next to her chair in her apartment in Washington, D.C., and it says, if you don't have anything good to say any about anybody, here, sit down by me. <laughs> she loved gossip. Well, people love to gossip about the church. Have you heard about so-and-so, a member of a church, and did you hear what she did? Well, in other words, the church is not perfect. And I'm sure you've heard the uh, reply that if a person says, I don't want to go to church because it's full of hypocrites, the answer is there's always room for one more. <laughs> the church is for sinners. Jesus said he didn't come for the people who were healthy and well, of which there are none. He came to help those who need a physician. So, it is not a body of perfect people. As a matter of fact, you go there because you realize that you're not perfect. Repentance comes first. If you don't repent first, then there's no reason for a savior. The second thing is a little more subtle. People are turned off by the positions the church takes on certain issues, political or social. Is the Lutheran Church Republican or is it Democratic? Well, it's interesting to read the Bible when it comes to politics. The political chapter in the Bible is Romans chapter 13. If you have your Bible there, you might want to compare what I'm going to read with your particular version. Romans chapter 13 verse 1 and following says, Everyone must obey state authorities. In other words, there's none of this with the bumper stickers that say, don't blame me, I voted for the other party. And it doesn't say here, by the way, that everyone must obey the state authorities as long as you live in a democracy. I think we sometimes make the mistake of thinking that God loves the democratic form of government more than he does any other form of government. It's interesting to contemplate that when God instituted a form of government in the Old Testament, it was anything but a democracy. He put Moses in charge, and Moses was a dictator. It was a theocracy. And then God appointed kings, and we had monarchies. So it is a little miscarriage of the Bible to say that God wants every country in the world to be a democracy. We thank God that we have a democracy, and it is of God. But so are other governments. It says, no authority exists without God's permission. And the existing authorities have been put there by God. Whoever opposes the existing authority opposes what God has ordered. And anyone who does so will bring judgment on himself. This has very interesting consequences because it brings up the question that when there's a revolution in the country, which side should you be on? Obviously, after the Revolutionary War was over, God wanted this form of government or it wouldn't be here. But before it began, this says he wanted that form of government. 
what did the Lutherans do during the Revolutionary War? It's a good question. I got interested in that once in a course I was teaching, and I found out to my great interest that the first speaker of the House of Representatives of the United States was a Lutheran pastor. And the president of this country, before the Constitution, under the Articles of Confederation of the United States, was a Lutheran. So the next time during a quiz show, who was the first president of the United States? Hanson was his name. <laughs> and then they had the Constitution. And then we got Washington, who was Episcopalian. <laughs> and then Jefferson, who was not really a Christian at all. But the point is, every Christian at that time, not just Lutheran, but every Christian who studied the Bible, had to decide in his own conscience what God wanted at that moment. And not to say, well, no, God wanted the King of England or God wanted the revolutionary forces. In turmoil, this is a very difficult thing to decide. They asked Lincoln that once during the Civil War. President Lincoln did not regularly attend church, but read his Bible daily. It'd be interesting to find out why Lincoln did not join a particular church. I have a book called Lincoln's Book of Devotions, where his favorite prayers are there. And the story came up once, that people came to Lincoln and said, President Lincoln, there are Christians in the South and there are Christians in the North, both praying to God that God would help them win. Which side is God on? And Lincoln, who had a great gift from God to say the right thing at the right time, said, I'm not interested at all in which side God is on. I'm interested in me being on God's side. And that's not just a clever answer, that's the correct answer. If we do the will of God, then we can expect to be blessed. Not if we say, oh God, join our side. We should be praying, God, make sure that we're on your side. So the church, it seems to me, has frequently been tempted, and we're all human, to take official positions in political matters and say, now if you want to be a good member of this church, you should feel this way about this particular cause in the community or the nation. Instead of saying, to individual people, pray to God that the decision you as an individual make will be one that is pleasing to God. And if it's different from the person who's sitting next to you in the pew, so be it. If anything destroyed the church as an organization over the years in human history, it is the fact that it got identified with a certain political viewpoint. The reason the church is virtually non-existent in France, and if you go to uh, France and go into a cathedral, you'll find very few people there, it's because in the French Revolution, the church of that time identified itself with the monarchy at all costs. And when the revolution was successful, the church went with it. And that was a mistake. The same thing happened in the Roman Empire. It was a wonderful thing that the Christians were no longer persecuted 
or so it seemed. But when the emperor made himself the head of the church and said that everyone must now be a Christian, and did you know that at a certain point you could be put to death if you were not a Christian in Rome? Well, how many Christians do you suppose there were? Lots of them. Lots of them. I heard the story, for example, in World War II in Germany, where a group of Christians was worshiping in Nazi Germany. And a German soldier came into a church where this was going on and pulled a gun out and said, all right, everyone who is ready to die for his faith, please remain. People were leaving by the score, out the window and door and everything, and a very small handful was left. And the soldier laid his gun down and he said, all right, I'm here to worship with you, but I just wanted to make sure that we only have real Christians left. So you see the church identifying itself with a political party or with a cause in history has often been the result or been the reason for its downfall. Well, enough of the don'ts and nots. Let's spend the majority of the minutes remaining talking about what the church should be doing. And of course, when we say church, you know that little song that the children sing? We are the church. When you're talking church, you're talking you and me. It's not somebody up there that's the church. When you're criticizing the church, you're criticizing yourself. As long as you claim to be a member of it, you are the church. And if anything has also contributed to a lack of attendance, it's that we keep blaming certain officials in the church and say if they were the ones who were better, then we'd have a better church. Or the officials are the people who do our bidding. We are the church. So what is the laity, and let's not call them laity in that sense, the servants of God that are the church, the members of his body, what are they supposed to do? Well, the book that tells us is God's instruction book. And I think one of the best places to find out what a church should be doing is in the instructions that Paul gave to his assistant Timothy. And I'd like to read from 2 Timothy verse four, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. I mean, he's making this pretty strong. Timothy wanted to know how to run the church he was in charge of who will judge the living and the dead, and because he is coming to rule as king, I solemnly urge you to preach the message, to insist upon proclaiming it, whether the time is right or not, to convince, to reproach, and encourage, as you teach with all patience. And of course, Paul knows better than anybody else that if you do that, you're not going to be very popular in many places. You're going to have a lot of trouble. He says the time will come when people will not listen to sound doctrine, but will follow their own desires and will collect for themselves more and more teachers who will tell them what they are itching to hear. People in this country are used to shopping for what they want. We go to the grocery store of our choice 
And unfortunately, this carries over into the church. And we go to the one we like best. And what he's saying here is that people are itching by their human natures to hear certain things. And they'll go to the church that tells them what they like to hear. They'll go to the one that tells them that they're nice. You're okay, I'm okay. Those religions are very, very popular. And Paul says, that's not what you're here for. If that's what you want to tell people, then why have the church in the first place? You can go and sit at home and say you're okay and feel good about it. But to tell the people what the Lord wants them to hear, to tell them the truth, it says you must keep control of yourself in all circumstances, endure suffering, do the work of a preacher of the good news, and perform your whole duty as a servant of God. So obviously, we, the church, are here given the responsibility to be the guardians of the word and message of God. That if we don't do that, it will disappear among us. It has before. Or it will move somewhere else. When we were in Africa, I don't know if I told the story before, but you're sitting there in a tent and wondering what's going to happen here. A big native came up with a spear and said, me Christian. I didn't say that. I should have said that. He said it because the gospel has just come to him in the last generation. He told us that his father had 21 children. How many wives? I forget. He said, but I'm going to have one wife because I'm a Christian. And it was interesting to hear the freshness of these new Christians. And we wish that the same enthusiasm for the gospel were alive in all the Christians and in ourselves, in our country. And the prediction has, of course, been made that Africa will be the next headquarters of the gospel. If one thing is true in the world, it is that the gospel moves that after a certain period of time, if the people no longer want it, it will go somewhere else and to the most unlikely places. There's a prediction, you know, that Russia will be the next headquarters of the Christian message. There is in the Roman Catholic Church a legend. It's a message that was given by supposedly Mary herself on May 1st, which is the interestingly enough, beginning of the communist government in Russia and also the holy day of Mary, that she, as a great work, Catholics are told, will convert the Soviet Union. You say, how can that be? We're the Christian nation. Those people are the ungodly ones. Wherever God plants faith, that is where the church is not just where they print a lot of Bibles or where there are a lot of people who claim to have membership. So the church is charged with the responsibility of maintaining the word of God in its purity and making sure that it's not lost. And that doesn't just mean that there are no more Bibles, it means that it is printed in its correct form. We got a letter last week, for example, that there's an organization that is interested in publishing a new Bible. 
in which all sexist terms are removed. Jesus in this new Bible, which it said is going to be published by the National Council of Churches, Jesus will not be called in there the Son of God. When it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, it becomes he gave his only begotten child. Our Father who art in heaven, what did they call that? Our parent. And on and on it goes so that it doesn't offend anyone. Now is that the way the Bible is written? Regardless of where your stand is on the ERA, does that accomplish God's purpose? Or does it really destroy the, the system of authority or family management or whatever it is that God has told us? We are to pray to God as our Father because the Father is charged in Scripture also with being the head of the family and of its religious life. So, we are the guardians of the Word of God. There's more. I have a friend who says I'm a perfectly good Christian, but I don't have to go to church to do that. I believe in the Bible, he says. I believe in Christ, and that's all that's required. Well, my question to him always is, what do you think the rest of this book is for? If you buy a car and all you need is a key to start it, why don't you throw the instruction book out? Because your tire might blow out and the key doesn't fix it. There must be more to the car than starting the motor. That's why the rest of the book is there. And who am I to say, well, if this is God's book, I just will use this part and throw the rest away. And there's a part in Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 25, where it says, Let us not give up the habit of meeting together, as some are doing. Instead, let us encourage one another all the more, since you see that the day of the Lord is coming nearer. Paul had the same problem we do today. People were not going to church. And he's writing in Hebrews and saying, do not give up the habit. And if church going becomes a habit, all the better. He says, some are doing this. Now why is that? That he wants people to go to church regularly, even though you can study your Bible at home and help to preserve the word and message of God? Obviously, because there is value in meeting with fellow Christians. It is certainly nicer to be with a whole group of Christians and see how the Spirit of God has moved in many people than to sit there by yourself or even listen to the radio by yourself and say, I wonder if there are any other people who believe this message. We want to encourage each other and that's why we meet as a church. But certainly much more. And as I said before, we're here to worship. If there is one important thing that the Lord asks believers to do, and that is, and in many different words in the Bible, to reverence Him. In my religion class, we go through the book of Proverbs. And it is amazing, as we take a chapter a day in class and read it through, how often 
that term is used. And how often when I ask the question of the students, what is it that the Lord wants you to do with your life? The first answer always comes out in Proverbs, reverence him. They say, what does that mean, reverence him? Does that mean hold him in high esteem? Yes, it means that. <coughs> Go and do what he wants you to do. Obviously, you don't reverence a person if you don't do what he tells you to do. And if it's God, it means to give him the honor that is due as the supreme being. And the best place to do that is in his house. Not because the house has any particular magic merit, but because that's the best thing we can think of to show that we consider him to be God. And a person who doesn't go there, when he claims to be a Christian, certainly, even in the eyes of the world, is suspect. If you belong to an organization and don't do anything, even the world considers you to be a sluggard. And they say, well, if you don't want to do anything, why belong to that organization? And yet, the Christian church has a great deal of trouble. Well, we call them, I remember when we have church council meetings, how much dead wood do we have in our church? I don't really know what dead wood is because only God can tell whether a person has faith and even if you have a little faith, you know, you go to the same heaven as if you have a lot of faith. But why did Jesus tell the parable of the wise girls and the foolish girls? We just had that in class. Why did he tell the story that there were 10 girls there waiting for the wedding and some had a lot of oil and some didn't have enough oil? Well, I asked the kids, what would you compare that to? Well, how about comparing it to a trip with a car and gassing up? Some of the girls had not gassed up. Well, we didn't know in discussing that parable of the gas and the car, how far away the wedding was. Now, if here are these five girls in a car, and they've been invited to a wedding, and they don't know how far away it is, and the needle is near empty, they're stupid. And that's the person who does not avail himself of everything the Lord gives him to give him the strength that he needs for who knows what's coming. Sure, you have faith, but you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow to test it. And if you don't gas up, you may not get to the end of the road and the station may not be open at 2 in the morning when the trials come. And finally, I see something in Scripture that's the hardest of all to do that the church is there in order to furnish us with the equipment that we need to do what the Lord asks us to do, and that is to witness to him and to serve him. We need a lot of power for that. And God promises that power if you ask him for it. He does it through his Holy Spirit. There are a lot of terms for that. We call it being born again, being baptized in the Spirit, that is to get the power that he promises to the people who ask him. He isn't going to shove it down anybody's throat. You come to faith, you're saved. Fine. If that's all there is to it, then we should pray God, oh, take us, I want to go to heaven now. I remember a story my grandfather told about a fellow who was always praying at night that he wants to go to heaven. Oh, if he could only get out of this veil of tears and be with God forever. 
They were sick and tired of this. So they rigged up his chair one night with pulleys and a rope. And it got dark in the room and he started praying, oh, take me, Lord, and they started hoisting. And he said, wait a minute, not tonight. <laughs> now, there's another way to go at that. If you're afraid that the people that you're speaking to are not going to remain Christians until they die, you might do what Father Marquette did. He came to Wisconsin, he got all the Indians together, and he waited for it to rain. And when it rained, there was water straight from heaven. He said, I baptize all of you, and then he shot him. Marquette did not get very old. Indian caught up with him. I'm pretty sure those Indians were saved. Maybe Marquette had a little more trouble unless he repented of that particular technique. He was so anxious, you see, to do it his way. He wanted to be effective. But what he forgot was that God does not tell us anywhere in his Bible that we should save anybody. <coughs> not even that we should convince anybody. God asks us to do only one thing, and that is to witness, to tell, or as Paul says, to plant and water. And God gives the increase. It's not up to us whether the other person believes. It's not even our doing if we believe. It's for us to witness, and that's why we're alive. That's the only reason a Christian is still living. Otherwise, as Paul said, it would be far better for him to die and to be with Christ. He wanted to go too, but he realized that he's still living because the only purpose for his life was that there were still some more people that he could talk to. And God gives every Christian, and it does say, if you read, if we had time to read the beautiful chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all the different ways in which God gives people power. And he doesn't give all of it to the same person. He gives each one some. And the point is to identify it and say, that's my particular bag. Last night I was with a group of singers from all over the country who were out at a Boy Scout retreat out in way, beyond Wading River. And to see those people, those young people from California and Iowa and Nebraska and Kansas, use their particular gift of song and of puppet shows and whatever it was to witness to those young boys. What a beautiful thing. They're spending this whole year going over the whole United States just doing that, taking a year out of their lives or out of college to use the gift that God has empowered them with. And you say, oh, if I only could do something like that and plunk that guitar. But when the Holy Spirit gives his power to a person, he gives it to him uniquely. No one else can quite fill the slot that you and I are filling. Otherwise, he wouldn't have us here. And it's up to us to do it. You say, well, I don't know what it is. Well, try a few different things. And don't worry about whether it works. And we shouldn't worry about whether we're going to look foolish. Of course we're going to look foolish. And you go and tell somebody that he has to repent and that there's only one way out of the kind of life he or she is living, that looks foolish. I mean, we're on a spot. 
It might even be a little hazardous. I vividly recall one time canvassing in a new neighborhood for a church. And there was a fellow, it was a Sunday afternoon, it was beautiful. And he was digging his garden with a spade. And we were given certain key phrases. If you don't know what to say, to learn a few by heart so you're not tongue-tied and say, well, it's a nice afternoon, oh, the Yankees are winning. That's easy. But then to start the true part of the conversation and say, either if you would die tonight, do you think you're going to go to heaven? Are you sure? Well, I did that, and the fellow went after me with his shovel. Fortunately, I was younger and stronger. I got away. <laughs> And it wasn't so easy to do. Another thing we were learning to do was to go up and if a person said a certain thing about what he believed, we were supposed to say, sir, do you know that if you keep believing that, you're going to go to hell? And you try that with a perfect stranger. He'll tell you to go to hell. <laughs> well, I did that. Wham! Door slammed shut. And about a day later, the phone rang. What was that you said about hell? Another time a fellow comes on Sunday afternoon, the door is obviously drunk. He said, don't talk to me about the church. I'm leading a good life. I said, I can see that. <laughs> and then <laughs> his wife in the kitchen <laughs> yelled to him, George, don't preach to the man. <laughs> See, a lot of people have different concepts of what the church is. This guy obviously felt that since he was in church, that he told me he was in church that morning, that that's all there was to it, and that he was okay. And how many people will tell you when you ask them, what is your hope of heaven? They'll say, oh, I do the best I can. I lead a pretty good life. I don't cheat on my wife, all these other things. Therefore, I'll go. Well, that's not what the Word of God says. It says that our hope is in Christ. None of our doing, none of our works, but we do them because that's what God wants us to do. Once you're Christians, you do what the book says because that's what he wants. And if you do it, you'll be rewarded. Even in his life, he says, I'll reward you. You put me first and I'll add all these things to you. Some people struggle and struggle for every buck. They don't make it. Somebody else, he tends to the Lord's business first and it seems to be poured into his lap. And he says, you disobey my commandments, you're going to suffer for it. That's for the Christian too, you know. He's not just punishing unbelievers. He's punishing a Christian who does not use the instruction book. It's an absolute scientific cause and effect relationship. God made the rules and these are the consequences. Well, we're almost at the end, and there's so much more we could say, and I'm really getting kind of teary-eyed to think that we're not going to have any more opportunity in the near future to do this, because what a wonderful group this has been. And I'd like to kind of summarize, and every teacher has a summary, you know, a review <coughs> at the end, of what we have really said these four sessions. Well, I'd like to put it in just four statements. God gave us our reasoning power. The devil surely didn't. And God gives us faith. They're both from him. They're obviously meant to be used. 
We use our reasoning power to the fullest. I read the other day that by the time you're a certain age, you've lost 50% of your brain cells. <laughs> I got worried about that and wondered how what percent is gone already. But then I learned from another scientist that in your whole life, you only use 5%. <laughs> so even if I lose 50%, I still have 45% that I haven't used yet. And God says, let us reason together about everything. A Christian is not a dope. A Christian is a person who uses his rational powers to the greatest of his ability. And he glorifies and enjoys having his faith. We should vigorously, as a church, promote the use of reason and faith because they're both from God. They're not contradictory. How can two things that are both from God be contradictory? They're not contradictory. What is contradictory is what people misunderstand about carrying reason too far, where reason is not meant to go, or applying faith to something that we can reason out. If you can reason something out, you don't have to have faith in it. You use the faith for the parts that you cannot reach. And then I feel what we've said today is that the Lord has entrusted his word and message to us. What a risky thing that is. <laughs> if we were God, wouldn't it be better if he'd come down here and kind of zonk everybody and if he has all that power instead of entrusting it to people? Wow, how perilous and precarious that is to leave the gospel up to human beings. One fellow told me once, he was Jewish, and he was listening to the Christian story. And he said, if I were God, if I had been Jesus, I sure wouldn't have picked 12 disciples like those losers. I would have picked fellows with more power and influence and intelligence like me. <laughs> he was serious. And if I had been God, he said, and let Moses out of the wilderness, Instead of making the right turn into the desert, I would have gone left to where the oil is. <laughs> he was accusing God of stupidity, you see, instead of letting God be God. But we let God be God and realize the awesome thing that he has left it us, up to us. And that if we don't do it, the gospel will disappear in this world in one generation. It, the, the church is the unsurest thing in the world because it depends on each generation over again. You can't legislate it. You have to depend on each person telling the next one. And finally, I think, if it gets very discouraging to be able to do all this, we remember that God never asks us to do the impossible. He gives us his gift through his Holy Spirit to do what we can do better than anybody else, no matter what it is, and then to sit down and go to sleep peacefully and say, God, you take over from here. I used to ask my father how come he can sleep so peacefully at night. And he said, well, you know what I do? I go to bed and I think of all the troubles I have and the worries and everything. And I imagine lifting them off my shoulder and putting them next to the bed and say, Lord, I need some sleep. You don't sleep. You take care of these. I'll pick them up in the morning. You know what? He said, I wake up in the morning, they're gone. 
So let God be God. We do the planting and the watering, and you'll be amazed and praise the Lord for the increase he's going to give. Thank you and goodbye. The clock is not the same as my clock at all. We used to do that at home too and make it five minutes early. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, we have we learned how to handle guest speakers. <laughs> <laughs> Set the clock ahead. Uh, there, is, there is time for one or two questions because I have uh, seven minutes by That's my right. watch. Uh, are there any questions for Dr. Trinkline? Any parting shots at him before he. We have a question, Dr. Yes. Yes, the, the thing that was in the glass was frozen lightning. It was a piece of plastic that had been charged with several million volts of electricity. And then when you tap it, all the electrons rush together like a river and make a mark through the plastic. It's kind of like an airplane making a trail in the sky, only this one is permanent. And it's very much like what we see when we bring moon rocks back. There are cosmic ray tracks in there. So someone a man by the name of Lichtenberg found how to make this, and you can buy these. You can buy them with Christian crosses in them and desk sets and so on. So if you ever go to your antique store or someplace, ask for a Lichtenberg figure. That's what that was, frozen lightning. I see what you missed when you don't come. <laughs> there are tapes, by the way, I thought you were going to ask about that, and they're not all perfect tapes, but this one should be a little bit better. People have asked, can they hear? Some of the other things, yes, we did make tapes of all four. And there are some, some people have been asking about this too. Pastor in his study has some copies of the God of Science, which is the record of my interviews with scientists that I uh, had around the world and that I quoted them this morning about their views on religion. Yeah, I do have some copies in my study and I'll try to remember to bring some down to the coffee hour after uh, church so that if you'd like to have a look at the book or you'd like to buy it available um, As I said uh, uh, at the beginning, this is uh, the uh, final uh, installment in uh, Dr. Trinkline's series, uh, this time. And I'm saying this time because uh, uh, as, uh, as I intimated, that, you know, we hope that this is the beginning of something now. We, he certainly got us off to a very, very nice beginning. And uh, the trouble is, uh, how do you follow such a good act? You know? What are we going to do now for Encore? But anyway, uh, <clears throat> I do have some plans, and I, I think that uh, we will be able to do some very interesting things. But among other things, I'm hoping that uh, perhaps in a year or so, perhaps next year at this time, uh, we'll be able to ask him back again. Maybe by that time, he's got another little series for us or something. And uh, so we, we will not say goodbye. We'll say, uh, I'll Peter's name, right? Now we don't have four minutes to get upstairs.